tonight's presentation, how many of you have been at weddings? Any of you? Wedding? You know, somebody getting married? Any of you have gotten married here? A couple of you? And some of you are hoping to get married, wannabes? Someday? <laughs> well, I, uh, I've been to many weddings, and uh, in every country you go to, they, there's some kind of a different slant to, to the way they do weddings. I remember I was in Romania, and they wanted me to celebrate a wedding. And uh, I was a little nervous because I didn't know the, what they do, how they do it. And it turned out to be completely different than what I was used to. Uh, because I was waiting up at the platform uh, at, at least for an hour, and I was not sure what was going on, whether or not a wedding was going to take place or not. But the people in the audience, they were sitting there, and everybody was peacefully uh, just uh, waiting. And it turned out that what they do is that the, the bride dresses up in a white, white uh, gown, and then uh, she... It's supposed to hide someplace in her house. And the groom is supposed to come and, and try to find the bride. And when, she, when he gets to the door, the families are supposed to try to discourage him from even wanting to find her. And so he goes and, and he has to demonstrate his earnestness and his longing to be able to get a hold of his bride. And they spend their time badgering back and forth. Well, she's not here. Well, she, she told me she'd be here. Well, there was a mistake. Uh, this is not the right house. You know, they go through all this. And finally, you don't believe us? Uh, no, it's not that I don't believe. Oh, look, oh, okay, you come and look inside for yourself. So then he's supposed to come into the house, begin to look throughout the house, until finally he hits the right room. He opens the door, and there she is in her splendor. And uh, then he takes her, and uh, as he comes to the door, a band is waiting at the door. And the band begins to play. And they begin to walk toward the church. And the bride and groom are walking behind the band. And the family are following behind. So there's this procession. And then I could hear some music in the distance. And it got louder and louder and louder. And the band walks into the church playing their music as the bride and groom come in. And then what I did not anticipate was that it was not a short uh, ceremony. In fact, let me see if I have a picture. Uh, can we turn it on up, up, up in front? All right. You remember last night, right? So this, this is deja vu. Anyway, so they are supposed to sit there, the bride and groom, um, and the preacher is still standing. So he's already waited a long time. So I'm standing there, and, the, and they sit down. And the reason they sit is because the, uh, the friends and family and all that are going to take this opportunity to, uh, okay, there we are. They're going to take this opportunity. There they are sitting. Can you see that? Uh, and so they, 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 they're going to listen to all sorts of poems and songs and poems and songs and poems and songs. It just goes on and on and on and on. And finally, after they're finished, you cannot preach a 10-minute sermon. It has to be at least a half an hour with translation, which means that the sermon is about an hour long. But they're sitting, so they're enjoying all of this. And finally, after all of that, then they stand up, and then we do the normal 
uh, vows, exchanging of vows, and, and finally get married. And what's interesting is that I went and did, did this wedding in 1991. And I returned back to Romania in February. We were doing what is called TMI. Any of you are acquainted with that? It's not too much information. It represents a total member involvement. What does it represent? Total member involvement. What's happening is that the general conference president is encouraging uh, membership to be involved in sharing the gospel. So uh, I had to go over in December to begin with to prepare the ground. I had to train 2,070 preachers, lay preachers. And after that, then uh, 100 of us went over with the 2,000 plus preachers, and we did over 2,000 meetings at the same time throughout the country of Romania. And so it was just spectacular. And then I had to go to Ukraine and, and do training over there uh, in December. And the Ukraine, I don't know how many people were involved because they actually uh, satellited the whole program to the whole Soviet Union. And so I know hundreds and hundreds of people were listening to it. So at the same time, we launched evangelistic meetings. And I don't know how many of you know about this, but you are able, if you like, to participate in one of these, just go on the website of tmi.org, and you can see the different countries that they're going to be holding meetings at, and you can then uh, volunteer and participate and preach your own series. Of course, they'll give you the sermons and all that and uh, prepare you, and you can participate for two weeks in another country and do an evangelistic meeting. How many of you would like to do something like that? Come on, there should be more hands. What happened to the rest of you? Okay, and so all you have to do is to do tmi.org, okay, www, and there you'll see the countries. Last year, they did meetings in Rwanda, and 100,000 people were baptized. How many? 100,000 people. And uh, presently, there are 20,000 evangelistic meetings going on in East Africa, and then there'll be 20,000 meetings going on in West Africa. And then uh, in 2018, I went over in January to the Philippines to prepare the conference leadership, talking about the Sabbath School personal ministries directors, and training them how to train, because next year in 2018, Japan is going to have the program, Thailand, Philippines, uh, Indonesia, etc. So there'll be thousands of meetings going on at the same time. It's just an exciting time. Can you imagine seeing 100,000 people being baptized at the same time? You talk about uh, excitement. And so that's what I was doing. So anyway, I returned back after 1991, about how many years is that? About 25 years, okay? Uh, and so the couple that I married uh, showed up just to uh, thank me for what I did 25 years ago. And they were still in love, still excited, uh, it was just a wonderful thing to see this couple. So, uh, weddings then are filled with thoughts of joy, festivity, and celebration, etc., aren't they? And it's interesting that the Bible, the Bible uses a lot of wedding stories as messages. So let's pray together as we study the Word of God. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to study, to pray, uh, to consider your messages to us. Bless in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the, the Lord uh, used different wedding scenarios to 
to bring to us messages. And one of the uh, things that he uh, did was he gave a message before the wedding uh, message in Matthew chapter 24. Now, if you see what I wrote there, Matthew 24 comes before Matthew 25. Is that true? <laughs> well, you say, Pastor, that's obvious, you know, 25. Yeah, 24 comes before 25. But here's the point that I've discovered recently that most of us don't catch, and that is that 24 and 25 actually are together. They're not separated. By the way, the person who separated the Bible into verses and, uh, and, and chapters was a man back in England who was riding on the back of a horse, and while he was doing that, he was uh, dividing the Bible. So the Bible originally did not have chapters and verses as you have it. That's why in the Bible, when you read the Bible, it doesn't say go to Jeremiah or it doesn't say Jeremiah chapter so-and-so. It just says Jeremiah said or Moses said. The reason for that is that in those days, there were no divisions of the Bible as we have it today. So we have it easy in comparison to those days. That's why the people had to memorize total volumes of Scripture, and it was part of their thinking. But today, we're blessed with the numbering and the chapters and all that. So Matthew 24, then, and 25 are actually linked together. They should be studied together. Uh, now, what about Matthew 24? Well, in chapter 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man, what? Deceive you. How many of you have read Matthew 24? Have you? You've read through Matthew 24? How many of you have read through Matthew 25? Matthew, okay. Now, here's the thing that's interesting to me also, of recent, as I've been studying it, I noticed something else that was uh, a, a little t twist to it, and that is this, that Matthew 24 is a chapter strictly addressed to the believers. To who? The believers. Usually, in evangelistic meetings, most of the time it is used for unbelievers. You go to an evangelistic meeting, you hear chapter 24 being used of signs of the things that are coming upon the world, correct? For the unbelievers. But in reality, chapter 24, it's for you. For who? For you, for the believer. In fact, uh, when Jesus said, take ye heed that no man deceive you, that takes for granted that you already know the truth. Is that true? And so, Jesus is speaking to believers. To who? Believers. Now, that is very important because Matthew 24 reveals the external factors that can impact your life. Okay? Matthew 25 reveals the internal factors that can impact your life. And that's why you have to read them together. But as I said, most of the time they're separated. All right? So Matthew 24 reveals the outside, the external factors. For example, it reveals that there will be earthquakes, correct? Is that internal or external? External. It reveals that there will be pestilences, which means diseases. There will be wars and all that. All of these things uh, are supposed to be things that you need to be careful about, but it is not the thing that you need to be most concerned about. 
Here's the reason why. The Bible says here in Matthew 24, because iniquity shall abound, what will happen? The love of many shall what? What's cold. So Jesus is saying, not the earthquake, not the storms, not the famines, not the diseases, but what? Iniquity. The what? Iniquity. Shall what? Abound. What would happen to the believer? The love of many shall what? What's cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So it reveals then that, yes, there are external factors that are out there, but those are not as important as your internal life, that which is within. Let me share some other things with you. Notice here, uh, let me go back to that. Notice here, in Matthew 25, Jesus is addressing those where? Inside the church, the believers. His main objective is to warn them concerning the external factors that could have an impact on their lives. These include, all right, those social seductive dangers looming in the horizon, seditious heresies and deceptions, and the portentous natural disasters caused by earthquakes, famines, diseases, and all that. Okay? So we know that these things are going on today. Is that true? You don't have to be a believer to know that things are happening. And tomorrow night, I'm going to try to share with you some of the things that are actually happening, scientifically speaking, that will help you to realize that even unbelievers recognize that we do not have much time on the earth. You hear what I said? Even what? Unbelievers. Scientists recognize that we don't have much time. But tonight, I want to focus on the scriptures. So listen. These particular items can have an impact on you. Uh, what man is there that dares to take that Bible and say this part is inspired, that part is not inspired? I would have both my arms taken off at my shoulders before I would ever make the statement or set my judgment upon the Word of God as to what is inspired and what is not inspired. So why did I bring this one up? Because it's speaking about heresies. Speaking about what? Heresies. One of the heresies that are going on today, right now, within the church, where? Within the church, is a heresy of trying to change the meaning of the scriptures. Do you hear what I said? All of these things that are taking place, uh, women in ordination and all that, all of these things are just facades. What did I say? facades concerning the real undercurrent that's going on. The real undercurrent is not necessary that women can be ordained or not be ordained. That's just an, uh, uh, an outside argument. The real issue is this. Can you trust the Bible? That's the real issue. Can you what? Can you trust the Bible? Can you accept what the Bible says? That's the real issue. Because the Bible says things that you may not like. But it doesn't change the fact that the Bible says it. Is that true? In other words, if you're an individual that loves pornography, you may not appreciate the fact that the Bible speaks about people who are seriously immoral. 
But whether you like it or not, the Bible does say it. I was in a certain country, and uh, I hate to say this, I was in a minister's meeting, teaching. And I mentioned fornication, and somebody in the audience, a minister in the audience said, there's nothing wrong with fornication. I was shocked. I was what? I was shocked. Why? What does the Bible say about fornicators? Any of you know? Anybody know? Do you know? No. The Bible simply says that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, people who are fornicators don't like to hear that because obviously they, that's the lifestyle they've adjusted and like to live. But the Bible says it because that particular lifestyle actually has an internal effect upon the individual. It has a what? An internal effect upon the individual. It actually has a stupefying effect on the brain. But the person who gets used to it begins to like it. They like the effect. It's just like taking drugs. People like the effect. They like the feeling, even though the drugs are killing them. Just like smoking. People like to smoke, correct? When they first start smoking, they choke and cough. But after a while, they keep on smoking. Then they learn to enjoy it. And I've known people that I've talked to, and they simply say, Pastor, I enjoy smoking. So every cigarette, scientifically speaking, is proven to take 14 to 18 minutes from the life. How much? 14 to 18 minutes from the life. But you have, if you have learned to like it, you have learned to like death. Isn't that funny? You like to like what? Death. You enjoy killing yourself. Until, until when? Until it finally catches up with you and you get lung cancer or something, then you regret that you ever smoked. And I can tell you I've run smoking programs throughout many nations. And I can tell you people who have come to our programs to quit smoking, and I had to tell them, uh, you don't sound, that cough doesn't sound good. You better go check it out. Why? Why? What's the matter? Uh, well, I think you better check it out. I remember one fellow, he was about 45 years old, came checked it out, uh, came to our program. I told him to check it out. He wouldn't want to check it out. He said, no, I'm okay. It's just a coughing. I said, you better check it out. Checked it out. They took him to emergent surgery. He had lung cancer. They pulled out a complete lung, and two weeks later, he was gone. And when I went to, to uh, talk to him before he passed away, I said, for the sake of others, What's is your testimony? He said, I wish I'd never done it. I wish I had never done it. Tell him not to do it. Tell him not to do it. So the scripture reveals things. Reveals what? Things. That we may not appreciate, but it's for our own good. However, if you don't like it, uh, then you begin to try to change the word. To do what? Change it. Okay. But the prophetess here says, I would rather have what? Both of my arms, what? Taken off where? My shoulder. Before I what? Before I would ever make the statement or set my judgment upon the word of God as to what is what? Inspired and what is not inspired. So God in his mercy has revealed things to us for our own good. 
And when we realize that, then we appreciate it. When we don't realize that, we don't like it. So Jesus warns. Jesus does what? He warns. Question, when is a warning a good thing? Is warning a good thing after it happens or before it happens? Before it happens. So if somebody warns you, you may not like the warning. And I think most of the time, our parents try to tell us, don't do this, don't do that, right? How do you feel about it? Ah, oh, mom, just leave me alone. I want to do my own thing, right? And so, but we forget that we are not an island, that when we get in trouble, we drag our parents down with them. Is that true? That's the reality. So, Jesus warns us, because he wants our good, and he spends the whole book of, of the whole chapter of Matthew 24 simply warning of external things that can impact the life. Now, what's interesting about this is that after he goes through the external things, you know, of the, uh, uh, the earthquakes and all that, uh, he's not warning us that we're going to be taken to heaven. Well, what does he say? When he comes to Noah, he says, as it was in the days of Noah. By the way, are you in the Bible already? You're not in the Bible already. What happened? I didn't tell you. I accept the responsibility. You have your Bibles? Okay. If you notice in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus, when it comes to Noah's time, he's saying, as it happened in what time? In the days of Noah. So shall it be when? The Son of Man cometh. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until when? Until the flood came, and what happened? And took them all away. So also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, uh, in those days, people will be drinking, and they'll be eating, and they'll be marrying and giving in marriage, okay? Now, uh, the same thing in Lot. In the days of Lot, they said they were building, they were planting, and again, they were uh, eating, drinking, and uh, marrying and in marriage until Lot went out of the city and fire came down from heaven, destroyed them all. So Lot was supposed to be a believer. Noah was a believer. And in essence, what Matthew is saying in this particular, Jesus is saying this in Matthew is simply this. You guys who are believers, need to watch out that the same thing that happened to the people in Noah's day don't happen to you. You guys need to watch out that the same thing that happened in Lot's day doesn't happen to you. Now, it's interesting that he uses good things. He uses what? Good things. For example, anything wrong with eating? Yes or no? How many of you ate supper tonight? All right, anything wrong with that? No, nothing wrong with eating. Drinking, anything wrong with drinking? No, it doesn't depend on what you're doing. Jesus is not speaking to non-Adventists, non-Christians. He's speaking to who? He's speaking to Christians. Therefore, drinking is not an issue here. Alcohol, okay? You understand? He is not dealing with drinking alcohol. And by the way, let me tell you this about alcohol. Today, people are saying that in the days of Christ, uh, there was no, no uh, grape juice. In essence, everything fermented very quickly, and then most of the drink was alcoholic. Wrong. If you do any research, you'll find out that fermentation 
only takes place above 45 degrees Fahrenheit. You can keep grape juice for years, fresh grape juice, without fermenting. Did you know that? Yes or no? No. So Jesus did not turn water into, for, into fermented wine because first, in order for, for, for wine to ferment, it first has to be grape juice. And then it ferments. So Jesus did not make alcoholic beverage. He first made what? Grape juice, okay? I was in Romania, as I told you, and as I was eating, uh, the lady uh, brought out a bottle of grape juice. And the husband said, uh, she made that. So I love grape juice, especially in Romania. They have beautiful, wonderful tasting grape juice. So she opened it up, and he said, do you know how old that bottle is? I said, I have no idea. He says, a two-year-old grape juice. It tastes just like grape juice. And I said, well, how did you do that? It's simple. You just have to do this and this and this, and you, and you can preserve it for years. So I discovered then that the Bible is not speaking about fermentation. It's discovering, uh, speaking about drinking, drinking grape juice, okay? Eating good food. Uh, what else? Marrying. Anything wrong with getting married? Given in marriage is what we call today getting engaged. So they were getting engaged and they were getting married. Anything wrong with that process? Yes or no? All right. Then what about building? Anything wrong with building? Any builders here? Anybody works in building construction, okay? Anything wrong with building? No. Nothing wrong as long as you're honest in the building, right? As long as you put the honest material there and you measure it the right way and all that stuff, right? Okay. Uh, planting, anything wrong with planting? No, nothing wrong with planting. Buying and selling, anything wrong with buying and selling? As long as you're honest, there's nothing wrong with buying and selling, correct? Okay. Question, why is Jesus using good things of themselves as a warning? As I said, he is not addressing the unbeliever, he is addressing who? The believer. So why is he using good things to warn you? It's very simple, very simple. You can be a person, like last night, remember I talked about running from God? Remember that? You can be a person who's smart enough to know that you are not about to surrender to God because you have your own plans for your life. You want to do your own thing. But you realize that you don't want to do something bad, but neither do you want to be devoted. You just want to be a normal person. So you get yourself busy in following after a wholesome career. And you get yourself so everlastingly busy studying that you have no time for God. And so while you're doing something good, in reality, you make no time for God in your life. The same thing with relationships. You can get together with a girl or, or a girl with a boy, and you can get yourself into a relationship so deep that you rather spend time with your boy or friend or girlfriend and spend no time with God. Is that true? All right. It's the same thing with getting a car. You buy a brand new car. You're all, all uh, excited about having this brand new souped up car. You spend all your time doing what? working on the car, tuning it up, and getting it with mag wheels and everything else. And you're so everlastingly busy that you have no time for who? For God. You can be building 
and be the best builder ever, and you make sure that you put the right materials on, etc., and get a reputation that you're an excellent builder, and while you're doing all that, you have no time for who? For God. So God is concerned about Christians who are so everlastingly busy doing good things at the expense of their salvation. That's what Matthew 24 is given. Listen, can you be saved dying in an earthquake? Yes or no? Absolutely. I mean, you can die in an earthquake and still go to heaven. Is that true? Yes or no? Of course. Can you be saved dying from a sickness? Absolutely. Right? Can you be saved and somebody shooting you down? Yes, if you're prepared and your heart is right with God, you can be saved. So all of these things, the external things, really are not something to be really serious about. What you need to be serious about is those things that affect you internally. Your belief system. Your time with God, or the lack thereof. Those are the things that you need to be concerned about. That's why he said, he said, when you see all these things, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't worry about it, in other words. In other words, they're going to come. Whether you like it or not, they're going to happen. But if you're right with God, it doesn't matter. Because as long as you're right with me, I can take you to the kingdom. But, but if you're not right with me, then there's a problem. Because I can't save you. I can't do anything for you. So you've got to cooperate with me. So I'm warning you, I'm telling you these things can happen, all right? But those things are not the chiefest thing to be concerned about, the earthquake, etc. What you need to be concerned about is your spirituality being snubbed or robbed or affected so that you could be religious but not savable. Is that possible? Can you be religious and not savable? Yes or no? Yes. Christ is concerned that you can be with him. And I'm thankful that we have a God who is, who is careful and kind and considerate and concerned enough that he's willing to spend time to uh, alert us to these things that are potentially dangerous to our spiritual lives. And while the external things will happen, how many of you have ever been in an earthquake? Any of you? If you've been in an earthquake, you know that that's pretty sh uh, shaky stuff, right? Yes? I was in an earthquake not too long ago. My building began to shake. Um, and uh, David Asher, he's one of the kids that I trained and baptized, he was down in, uh, in New Zealand. And... Well, he was there all of a sudden, an earthquake hit. And the building he was in, he fortunately ran out. And there were buildings all over the place that had been toppled down and all that. So I called him. I said, you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, Pastor. <laughs> but he said, I was, I was a little shaky. Well, you would be shaky if you were in that kind of experience, right? But if he had died in an earthquake and he was right with the Lord, it wouldn't matter. You still be safe with Christ. What do you say?
But if he was not, then you have to be something to be concerned about. And so, it was this kid, and I call him kids. You have to forgive me. By the way, I have to confess to you. I, uh, what is it today? Today's the 20th? Tomorrow I'll be 71. How many? 71. Well, people say, you're 71? Well, I forgot to shave. I would have looked younger if I had shaved this morning. Thank be to God for the health message that we have. It changed my whole life, and uh, I'm thankful. My father was the only one who became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. He changed his lifestyle. He was one of 13 siblings, and all the siblings died young. He's the only one that lived to four months shy of 100. Just died two years ago. And when I see him in the resurrection, I'm going to tell him, Dad, I'm, I'm disappointed in you. He probably asked me why. I said, I was expecting you to live 100, not 99 plus. But the Lord gives us, he gives us what? Counsel. He wants us to, to, to follow the counsel for our good. So these things in Matthew chapter 24 are really external factors. They're what? External factors. Heresies are external factors, correct? They don't have to necessarily affect you. I've been through, through this, I've been in ministry now for about 46 years, and I can tell you that I've been through all sorts of heresies that have come up, strange, weird things that people have believed and thought to be true and real, uh, and they made shipwreck of faith. Unfortunately, uh, they've fallen by the wayside, they're back doing the thing they used to do before, uh, destroying their lives with alcohol and drugs and so forth. It's a, it's a real pity. But God has a better way for us. And, and so the days of Noah and Lot revealed those external and internal factors that will affect the believers by picturing the condition of the world before the coming of who? The Son of God. And I think all the things that have been mentioned, uh, you know, are true. I was just in San Francisco, and I did not know why my GPS was deterring me around uh, to get into San Francisco the first time. It actually was correct. But then when I got close to, to San Francisco, I was going to see my son, who works uh, for the Marriott. Uh, he, he's uh, HR, teaches the people, trains the employees and all that. So I was going to go see him, and the GPS told me to go a certain way. And it turned out that there was a huge parade downtown San Francisco's because the who won? The Warriors won. They're now the champions, basketball champions. So, you know, so there was a big celebration, all right? Big, big celebration. Uh, you wouldn't have that many people show up in church there were thousands of people who were there, thousands of people. But the same thousands of people probably would not be going to celebration that they're going to church, right? So we know that things are, are happening. So now we go to chapter 25. Uh, did you get the gist of chapter 24? So next time you read it, remember, it's talking to who? To you. Yes, I know you can use it 
for the unbelievers, but it's talking to you. That's why it's important, and, and, and there's a kind of a twist in Matthew 24, and it says this, the, the rapturous, you know people who teach a secret rapture? You know a secret rapture? That you'll be taken off all of a sudden, disappear and all that? They use Matthew 24, but the problem with that is that they're applying it as if though it's speaking about unbelievers. But in reality, it's speaking about believers. Let me explain what I mean. When it says as it was in the days of Noah, right? Correct? Uh, was Noah a believer or an unbeliever? He was a believer. But it's not addressing what's going to happen to Noah. It's addressing what's going to happen to the people outside. So Noah is only being used as a historical point of reference, as it was in the days of Noah. Just like if I would say to you tonight, as it was in the days of President Kennedy, I was in school when the principal called us down and made an announcement that everybody had to go to the auditorium. And there, the shocking news was given by the principal that our president was assassinated and told us all to go home. So who am I really talking about, the president or myself? Hmm? Yeah, I'm talking about what happened in the day when President Kennedy was assassinated, but I'm talking about my experience at that moment, okay? So it's speaking about here as it was in the days of Noah, talking about what happened in Noah's day, not what happened to Noah, but what happened to in Noah's day. And this says that they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the flood came and what? And took them all away. All right? So question, who will be taken when Jesus comes? The righteous or the wicked? The who? How many of you say the righteous? Can I see your hands? How many say the wicked? Can I see your hands? How many of you want to raise your hand? All right. I saw that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, the problem is this. The problem is this, see, that that particular chapter and those verses are explaining to you what's going to happen to the people in Noah's day. It doesn't tell you what happened to Noah other than he entered into the boat until that Noah entered into the ark and they knew not and the flood came and took them all the way. So it will happen when Jesus comes. So if they were taken away in Jesus uh, in Noah's time, who will be taken away in Jesus' time? The wicked. And if you go to Luke chapter 17, you'll find that it says, and they were destroyed. So what does the word taken mean? Destroyed. They were destroyed. So who will be destroyed when Jesus comes? The wicked. Who was destroyed in Noah's day? The wicked. But the rapturous had turned around and said, the righteous are going to be taken to heaven. And the, and, and, and the wicked will stay. But the whole chapter is dealing with speaking to the righteous to be careful what happens. And, and Jesus is not saying, you better watch it, you're going to be taken to heaven. He's saying, you better watch it, or you're going to be taken to destruction, just like the people in Noah's day and the people in Lot's day. You understand? So the rapturous misuse the Bible, twist the Bible, to try to establish a doctrine that's not supported by Scripture. That's why Jesus said, be careful for those heresies. Okay? You understand? It's called the power of suggestion. What is it called? Power suggestion. Let me, let, me, let me give you an example how it works. Uh, how many of you can raise your right hand with me? Just raise your right hand with me. Raise your right hand. And I want you to do what I tell you to do. What, what did I say? I want you to do what? What? What I tell you to do. With your right hand, right now I want you to rub your chin with me. Rub your chin with me. Your chin. Your chin. I saw what you did. You started out here and you came down here. Okay. All right. 
So why did you rub, why did you rub your cheek? No, I told you to do what? I told you to do what I told you. You see, I said, do what I told you to do. But you did what? What you saw me do. It's called the power of suggestion. Okay? So Jesus is saying, be careful. What's he doing? He's telling you, be careful because the heresies can affect you the same way. But now let's go to 25, all right? The chapter 25 main focus is not the external factors, but rather the what? The internal. Now, this is more serious. This is what? This is more serious. All right. Now, while the external factors are serious and cannot be taken lightly, the internal factors are of more serious consequences. One can make it to heaven suffering a mother's death. Is that true? Yes. But a slothful, careless Christian can be lost. Okay. If there were ever a time when a person needs to be serious about his religious faith, it's today. It's when? It's today. It doesn't matter how young you think you are. You may think, well, you know, I don't need to. No, if there was ever a time when you need to become serious about your faith, what you really believe, it's today. You need to examine it. You need to know why you believe and why it is that you follow what you follow. Because a lot of young people grow up in the church and really, if I were to ask you questions about your doctrine, you would, yeah, it says it someplace in the Bible, but that's all you can tell me. My wife, she's a fifth-generation Adventist. She's a what? Fifth-generation Adventist. When I got married with her, I was sitting in the church, and the pastor was giving a sermon on the, on the beast, the mark of the beast. When we left, she said, it's too bad you can't prove that from the Bible. Because he was using some spirit of prophecy quotes, okay? Now, my wife's not only a fifth-generation Adventist, her grandfather was vice president of the General Conference, and most of her family spent years in, in, the, in the mission field, in Indonesia, etc. all right? So she grew up in, the, in an Adventist, what they call Adventist ghettos, PUC, Pacific College, and uh, surrounded by, by Bible teaching all the time, and we're sitting in Brooklyn, New York, in church, and the pastor's talking about the mark of the beast and reading some spirit of prophecy statements about it. She says, too bad you can't find that in the Bible. I couldn't believe it. I was in the church one year. How long? One year. And I said to her, come here, little lady. Let me show you something. And I opened up the Bible. And I showed her that from the Bible you can prove the mark of the beast. She was amazed. She said, I didn't know that that was in the Bible. Now, you can't do that to her today. You try to ask her a question of the Bible, she'll tell you the point, where it is, and how you can find it, etc. Praise God. Made a change in her life. But it's possible for a young person to grow up in the church and really not have an answer for the faith that's within them. Is that true? And so, the internal factors. Let's consider it. The parable of the ten virgins. Ten virgins. By the way, how much time do I have until 8.30? Huh? Until I finish. All right. You mind if I uh, finish this up? You have to say yes or no. Yes. yes. All right. He's shaking his head, then he realized, oh. <laughs> okay. All right. Matthew 25. I want you to notice what takes place in Matthew 25. The Bible is filled with marital language. We know that Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. Is that true? We know that John himself calls himself the best man. Uh, he says, you know, they say, well, trying to get him jealous and say, hey, he's baptizing more than you are. And John just simply says, hey, I'm the best man. I rejoice when the bridegroom is coming. He's here now. So 
you know, my job is done in, in essence, all right? Uh, the, the best man took care of the, the bride, all right? So you find then, let me keep on going, he told his disciples the story of the ten virgins and by their experience illustrated the what? The spiritual condition of the believers that shall be living just before his second coming. So now we're going, getting home. Let's consider this. There are ten virgins. How many? Ten virgins. And by the way, biblically speaking, the number ten is a very important number. Number ten, actually, uh, the root of it is many. Do you remember someplace in the Bible that word many? M-E-N-E, many? Where is that found? In Daniel. It simply means number. What does it mean? You're numbered. In other words, you're weighed in the balance and you're found wanting. Okay? That's what it means. Ten virgins. And the number ten is a very important uh, number. I'm of Jewish descent. I don't know if you knew that or not. Any of you of Jewish descent here? All right. So we're both uh, Yiddish. Okay. Fastage Yiddish? Nah. Okay. Well, he's kind of a... <laughs> All right, now, these uh, 10 virgins, the number 10, there were 10 patriarchs. In other words, from Adam to Noah, there were 10, okay? And in Noah's day, there were only how many righteous alive? Eight. And this is an important point that you need to realize. The reason why God had to get involved and bring about the destruction is because if God would have had allowed Noah and his descendants to die, there would have been none righteous on the earth. In other words, the righteous became a seriously endangered species. Okay? Do you understand? And if God had not interposed, if God had not gotten involved and had allowed the, the, the trend to continue, it would have finally gotten to the place where there were no righteous on the earth. Number eight was a critical number. That's why with Abraham, when Abraham asked if there are 50, there are 40, he ended up with what number? With 10, see, if there are 10. In other words, folks, if God had not acted, there would be no human being on earth because God would have, would have had to give up. Satan would have said, I won, and God had, would have had to surrender the earth to the devil. I'm grateful that that didn't happen. What do you say? So in order to preserve the human race, God had to destroy the bad, infectious disease and start all over again. So number 10, very critical number. Now, Jews cannot worship in a synagogue unless there are how many? 10. And by the way, the word for that the source for the requirement of minion, which is the 10, is recorded in the Talmud. The word minion itself comes from the Hebrew root name, and I need to change the spelling of that, meaning to count to or to number. The word is related to the Aramaic word many numbered, appearing in the writing on the wall in Daniel chapter uh, 5, verse 25. And so, when the angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah, did they find 10? No. Did they find eight? 
No. What did they find? They found basically four. But in reality, how many were there? Three. Because it turned out that one of them, numbered among them, there was something happening inside. Where? Inside. And so, we are living in a day where this world is still standing because there are righteous people on the planet. Because of what? Even though you may have friends who ridicule you, even though you may have people who, who mock you, even though you have people who don't understand you, who uh, hate you because you're a Christian, the reality is they're standing and criticizing you based upon the fact that you're still present as a righteous person on the earth. If it were not for the righteous, God would have to destroy the entire earth. But God has no delight in destroying the earth because God intends that humans will live forever. For how long? Forever. But in order for God to do that, he has to work inside of you. Where? Inside. He has to make a change in you. He has to remove all that pollutes you to make you saintly. And this is where the struggle is. The greatest struggle that God has is how to bring about a change in you so that you can be savable. That's a tough work. The reason why it's tough is because of all the things that God created on this earth, he created you uniquely with the ability to make up your own mind as to what your destination will be. Everything else is subject to what God decides. You can make up your own choice. You are, and please understand the way I'm saying this, you are a little God. God made you in his image. But you can corrupt yourself and lose that standing that God wants you to have with him forever. And so the inside is what God is mostly concerned about. As I said, uh, in the scriptures, Jesus said, you know, if you have a finger that offends you, do it what? Cut it off. Because it's better for you to enter into the kingdom without a finger, without an arm, without a leg. If your eye offends you, do what? Pluck it out because it's better for you to enter in without one eye than to be completely lost. So Jesus can repair your eye. Jesus can give you back an arm. Jesus can heal you again. But Jesus cannot do what you do not allow him to do in you. That is, Jesus cannot change you without your will. And so he gives parables. He gives lessons. He gives instructions with the hope that you and I will come to the place that we want him to make the changes in us so we can be savable, okay? Now, there is a process of weighing or trying for the purpose of making a what? The final decree. In every situation, God, before he destroys, he always allows a process of evaluation. Jesus said, let us go down and see whether or not these people who are building the Tower of Babel to see whether or not they're really doing what they're doing. 
Did Jesus have to come down and do that? No, he already knew, okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? But Jesus allowed that. Achan, Achan who stole the, the golden wedge in the Babylonian uh, uh, garment, who hid it in his tent, God said to, to uh, Joshua, Joshua, the sin in the camp. Did God know who it was? Yes. But why did he allow time? He could have just told Joshua, hey, Achan did it, go and get him. No, the, the casting of the lots began. God was giving the man an opportunity to repent and to allow what God only could do for him. But Achan refused. And after the, the weighing, the weighing, the weighing, he could no longer hide himself, and it turned out that he was the guilty one. So God in his mercy today, what's he doing? He is allowing us to ride our lives as we so choose, but remembering this, that as you sow, so shall you reap. All right? So the ten virgins. Let's quickly consider the ten virgins. Let's see if I can get it. Five were what? Five were wise and five were foolish. Now, it uses the wise and foolish because God wants us to understand something. And that is that you have to exercise your ability that God gives you. God is not supernaturally going to come down and whop, and all of a sudden you are a saint. God wants you to cooperate with him because ultimately you are going to have to live out your life in eternity. And God wants you to want to be in eternity, and in order for you to want to be in eternity, God wants you to want the things of eternity. In other words, if you're a thief, it's time to ask God to change you so that you won't be tempted to steal the gold from the New, New Jerusalem. You understand? I mean, if, if a thief got to the New Jerusalem, he saw the transparent gold, he'd probably try to get a pick or something to chop it out, right? So God is anxious. He is anxious to change us so that by nature we become all that he wants us to be, holy, wholesome people. And that's good news. What do you say? To think that God believes that means that it's possible. All right, so they were all virgins, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins, all right? In other words, it is speaking about ten believers. How many? Ten. And what were they? Believers, all right? Two classes of watchers represent the two classes who profess to be waiting for their Lord. They're called virgins because they profess a what? A pure faith. By the lamp is represented the word of God. So here we are all sitting here. But only God knows where you are in your heart. And that's why it says, man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. And you can fool people. You can, you can uh, play the role. Uh, you can be an actor and know how to act well a certain way. But the heart may not be there with God. And so God calls the person who is seriously in favor of following God, wise. He calls a person who's playing the role foolish. Okay, now, notice what takes place. With these two virgins, with these two classes, let me get closer over here, all right? The little lamp represents the word of God. 
The oil represents the Holy Spirit. And so, the lamp is, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? You already know that. And then, I'm still trying to change that. Can you just put your finger on there? Okay. Uh, the oil represents the Spirit of God. So here's the message. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be what? Forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against what? The Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men, and whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. If you remember the time of Noah, there's a passage there in Genesis chapter 6 that says, my spirit shall not always strive with who? With man. Okay. So in Noah's day, the Holy Spirit was working to change the hearts of people. But when it says, my spirit shall not always strive with man, means that he finally gave up. From the time that you're born until the time you die, the Spirit of God works on your heart. You may not know it. There are people who are strangers to divine influences. They have no idea that there's any such thing as a spiritual realm. Okay? But whether they know it or not, like the soldiers at the cross who were crucifying Christ, whether they know it or not, God still works on the heart. And the Spirit of God is working on your heart all the time because God wants to save you. You may not understand it, you may not realize it, you may not know it, but that's the reality. Now, however, there comes a time in a person's life where God's Spirit will no longer continue to force. He doesn't force anyway. He impresses but he gets to the place where he can no longer do anything for you. And that's why it's called the unpardonable sin, all right? So apparently what's taking place is this, that in these ten virgins, five of them are allowing the Spirit of God to work in their lives, represented by the oil, all right? The other five are still religious, but have at some point uh, negated or hindered or cut off the influence in their lives to change. And here's how we, we can do that. I remember a certain gentleman, he was a physician in one of my churches, who knew he was doing something wrong. And I remember we were driving together, and he made this statement, I know that it's wrong, but when God is good and ready to take it away, he will. Until then, I'm going to continue to do it. Now, the man knows what's wrong, and the Bible says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is what? It is sin. So if you know it's wrong and you continue to do it, what are you doing? You're still sinning. But what he did was he decided that God was responsible, okay? So when God is good and ready to take it away, then he will. Until then, I'm going to continue, basically, I'm going to continue to enjoy what I'm doing, even though I know it's wrong. The reality is that he, that the Spirit of God had already convicted him about what was right because God does not have to make you feel terribly, terribly repentant in penance uh, before you repent. 
Many times God just simply wants to reveal something to you with the hope that you say, if that's the way, I'll follow it. You understand? Sometimes God has to really deeply convict you because if he doesn't, uh, you're too dull that, uh, to understand that God wants you to change. So he really beams down at Paul. God says, you can't continue to, prick, to kick against the pricks. And the reason God said that was because Saul was convicted. He knew what he was doing was wrong, but he kept on doing it. And finally, the Lord knocked him off his high horse. And when he fell off the horse, then he woke up to the reality that he was fighting against Christ. And that's when he submitted and said, okay, I give up. What do you want me to do, Lord? Go to Damascus and they'll tell you what to do. Okay? I thank God for that kind of mercy, what do you say? And that kind of love. So, these people, like that gentleman, know what's wrong and continue to do it. The Spirit of God finally gets to the place where he gives up. And the sad thing is that many times the people don't really, don't even know that he's given up. God does not want anyone to be lost. He wants all to be saved. But you must cooperate with God. You must demonstrate that you want God to work in you. You must be willing to allow him to do the incision, as it were, and to bring about whatever change needs to take place so that you can be with him in the kingdom. All right? So, while the bridegroom tarried, they all fell asleep, which is an important thing here, waiting. What did I say? Waiting. There are many people today who are saying, my grandmother believed Jesus was coming, he didn't come. My great-grandmother believed he was coming, he didn't come. And my dad believed he was coming, he didn't come, and he's dead, so, you know, will it ever happen? Waiting makes time seem long. Isn't that true? I, I have now have to use earplugs because of the army you know, bombs going off and all that. And so now I have to use earplugs. I call them bionic ears. And so uh, when I have to put a battery in the earplugs, I have to wait three minutes. How long? And just thinking about waiting three minutes seems like a lifetime. Do you understand? You hear what I'm saying? So, the waiting period, the waiting period, the trying period, and the reason why it appears that Jesus will not come is simply because God is willing to allow the true natures to come out. So, if you're genuine, it will be revealed in the waiting. If you're not genuine, it will also be revealed in the waiting. Okay? God is not playing games. He simply wants to allow for the true, sincere, genuine person to be revealed, as well as the insincere person. So, the five foolish, this class represents the virgins that are, 
uh, are not hypocrites. Why? Because they regard the, the true faith. They have advocated the truth. They are attracted to those who believe the truth, but they have not what? Yielded themselves to what? To the Holy Spirit's working. They have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and permitted their old natures to be what? Broken up. And so, because they have not allowed the Spirit of God to change them, and there may be different ways that people do that, the time comes when God simply says, that's what they want, leave them alone. I don't know about you, but I don't want God ever to say that about me. What do you say? I never want the Lord to say, you know, that's what he wants, let him go. Well, no man can impart that which he himself has not received. In the work of God, humanity can originate how much? Nothing. No man can by his own efforts make himself a light bearer for God. God wants us to participate in this character development. Character is not what? Transferable. No man can believe for another. No man can receive the spirit for another. No man can impart to another the character which is the fruit of the Spirit's working. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. So, in conclusion, God has mercy on us. His Spirit works on us. But we need to participate with that development. We need to spend time with God ourselves. We need to pray to God by ourselves. We need to read the scriptures for ourselves. We need to witness to others by ourselves. All has to be done in cooperation with the Spirit of God. And as we allow the Spirit to use us and to work in us and to change us, we will be growing and growing His likeness. And when that time comes, which nobody knows when that time will be, you will either be among the, what the scripture said, let them that is holy, let them be holy, still, and, and let them that be filthy, be filthy, still. In other words, the decoration will be made, the five foolish virgins will be revealed, as well as the five wise virgins. The wise have allowed the spirit to work in them, to change them. And... Uh, to make in them whatever God wants them to do. The others felt the benefit of being by good people, but secretly they wanted to hang on to things that would identify them with the lost. God is still working tonight. He still speaks to our hearts. He appeals to us. He longs for us to allow him to make changes in us. Will you allow him to make changes in you? Will you say, Lord, 
I don't want to be plain church. I want to be real. I want to be genuine. And even though there are things in me that are not pleasing to you, I want you to pull them out from me. Because frankly, there are things that we don't have the strength to surrender ourselves. There are things in our lives that we cannot overcome by ourselves. We need the help of God. We need the Spirit to work in us. We're living in those days, folks, and it's our choice. Whose choice? It's our choice. When the bridegroom comes, by that time, the decision has been made. Those who will be saved will be saved. Those who will be lost will be lost. And at that time, there is no reversal. You will remain as you are for eternity, either savable or lost. I want to be saved. What about you? Let's pray together. Holy Father, we're thankful for the admonition, the counsel that you give us. We're old enough here to understand that there's a heaven to win and a hell to shun. But we recognize the need to cooperate with you. And so you've seen our heads nodding because we want to be savable. And Lord, we pray that you will work in us until nothing remains of us that's in sympathy with the enemy. Continue to allow your spirit to bring about in us those changes that he alone can make in us. And then, Father, enable us to glorify you in our lives. And at last, when that moment comes from which there is no reversal, granted that we will be on the right side. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.